Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week I speak with the founder of an exciting Aussie food title, Swill. Plus, we explore the most beautiful sea pools in the world. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about Sydney-based title Swill Magazine, a foodie magazine with a very interesting range of stories. On issue 3, for example, topics range from Greek Aussie chef Ella Mitas writing about her eye-opening journey through the kitchens of Turkey, and we discover how Rob MacLeod, a ginger-haired Irish man living in Scotland, delivering poetry readings about sieving wine through his teeth, caught the attention of satirist David Sedaris. For more, I spoke with their editor, Miffy Rigby. It really is a magazine that is made from the gut and the heart. Everything about this is so, I don't want to say sort of gut reaction, but it is, it's really, it comes from this other place that I've never really had the privilege to work from before, which is is just so reactive in a way. And, and it really taps into this, creative and playful side where the big what if that thing that you want to be able to cover off as a journalist always is so art and restaurants and performance and beauty and all of those joyful moments that you experience when you go into a restaurant that's what I want to cover the culture of restaurants not just food not just drink not just design but the underlying guts the underlying feeling that's what I want to find I think that's a good description. And tell us more a bit about yourself. I mean, you did work in other publications, I believe, Time Out Australia, among others. So you were already interested in the world of food and all its kind of different sides, right? Yeah. So I was uh, the food and drink editor for Time Out Australia, and I worked for them for seven years and helped launch it over here, actually. And then I went on to work for the Sydney Morning Herald and edited their Good Food Guide for another seven years after that. So I've always been sort of elbows deep in the restaurant scene in Australia, but I always found the stories that excited me most were not so much writing about restaurants, but about the people behind them. I, I Like for me, the most wonderful part about writing about food or, or dining out is those moments that happen before service, that moment when you're sitting at an empty table because that's the moment that's full of promise. You don't know what's going to happen throughout an evening. It's the unpredictability of it, the passion of it, the thoughtfulness of, of a restaurateur or a chef all of the heart that goes into it, that's what excites me. Not so much what goes onto the table, but what sort of happens beforehand. I like it. As you say, the performance, right? <laughs> mm, exactly. The performance, the the juice, the the otherness, I guess. Tell us about the format for Suo. You know, it's a large format, a beautiful cover, usually with uh, kind of, it's illustrated. Tell us about the design part, because it's also not kind of your uh, traditional food magazine, I would say. No, uh, the design part is so essential. The The art director of the magazine, Ali Webb, is, is a lino-cut artist in her own right, and 
for her and her husband, Anton Forte, who publishes the magazine, for them, beauty is always at the forefront of everything they do and originality and joy. And so the design is so, so incredibly essential and it really does lead everything we do. We look at everything from every angle, but we also work with this incredible designer, Daniel New, who is also an artist. He is one of those rare designers that when he's given the brief, he actually reads the entire story and then thinks about the language of the art that he can create around that and and the design elements around that, rather than trying to shoehorn things into an existing template. He'll create something new for every article, which is so wonderful to work with because it means there's always this flexibility and and movement to every story that we create and so it feels very collaborative I guess again something that I've never really had the joy of of experiencing before and um, if you I, I'm curious about the magazine scene in Australia you know is it still do you feel a strong market i know swill there's kind of an almost an international spirit as well but mm. tell us about the local market how do you see these days do you see with optimistic eyes perhaps i wish i saw it with optimistic <laughs> eyes actually I, it, it, sometimes it makes me a little sad i don't know if it's the australian market but when it comes to i, I can't speak to other countries but here i think there's there's sort of it's two parts there is the established media, I think there's a fear there around giving people something new, giving people something that might be risky. And so they sort of create a sameness. But but there are all of these little independent magazines that have started to to emerge. And they they're all speaking to a very local market, but but really doing incredible things. Um, Counter magazine, Verasian, which is really dedicated to wine. There's, there's lots happening, but in terms of what we're doing, I guess it's, I don't really think there's anything else like that in Australia, um, something that speaks beyond restaurants, something that speaks towards, I don't know, those other elements that speak to the soul. Yeah, the market, uh, sorry, the magazine scene in Sydney, the media scene, it's a little smaller than I'd like. I think when there are, like, when there are lots of things happening, I mean, you want everyone to rise up at the same time right like you want things to feel dynamic you want to be competing against other people and feel that there's lots of electricity in the air and i'm really hoping that that actually happens but we are a small market here as well well but you know i, I did see some copies of suo in london so i think that was your intention as well to always have this international market yeah the intention was always to be international but to also have a bit of an australian soul mm. I think that's important. And give us a taster of stories from issue three, which is the current issue as well. And I know it's a quarterly title, so I'm sure you're actually, your mind probably is more <laughs> at issue four, right? Actually, we're, um, issue four, issue four is, uh, I just got my proofs back today. It's looking pretty, pretty exciting, but I'm on, I'm actually now on issue five. Oh God, uh, great. I know, but issue three is, there's a beautiful sandwich centerfold from Max's Sandwich Shop in London. Um, I always wanted eating... to go there, actually. Maybe you're, maybe Swill will finally convince me. Oh, I hope so. It's <laughs> a pretty one. Like, I haven't actually eaten there, but um, the sandwich is like this crazy sort of soft focaccia filled with, like, ham and fried egg and little bits of fried potato. It's just this 
like crazy looking thing, like a real towering, like two hands kind of sandwich. So I think once you see that, you're going to want to go. But then like that is also the counterpoint to that is the art of um, of a regional Australian artist called John Boker who does these beautiful oil painting tablescapes. And then we have like this guide to Milan, which is essentially this huge bitsy illustrative diary of all of the most wonderful places to eat and drink and shop but at the same time it feels like you sort of picked up somebody's journal from the 1970s and we've got uh, uh, this my probably one of my favorite recipe spreads we've done in some time uh, which is a Singaporean breakfast food so uh, I'm not sure if you if you have too many of these in London but just like a Singaporean diner where you would get nasi lemak and you would have beautiful eggs and pandan toast, or sorry, kaya toast and teas and coffees and beautiful soft eggs. Oh, I'm just looking at it now. Nasi lemak, so the, like the fat rice with curry and little pieces of, of crisp fish. And all of that is shot through this so almost like Vaseline lens. So it feels like being in a sort of a sweaty Singaporean copetiam. And it's funny you mentioned the photography as well, because I actually I have issue mm-hmm. two in my hands. And there's a random, mm-hmm. there's an article here about Tortas Don Polo. I mean, the oh, pictures yes. are so evocative. And I think photography is especially important on a magazine like yours, right? To transmit that. I don't know. I mean, when you when you look at an article, I just want to go and eat a sandwich or go to a Singaporean diner. Oh, absolutely. That's uh the Great Tortoise of Mexico City story was one of my favourite and accidental commissions. I just started uh, talking randomly to this um, Mexican-based photographer and I looked at his work and I was like, I have to do something and I didn't know what it was and we sort of just started workshopping and his name is Andrew Reiner and we came up with this idea of these sandwiches that kind of bind a city and and I think one of the most important things and one of the things that, that makes me the happiest about this magazine is giving photographers the freedom to express themselves through the pages, giving them the space and then giving them a bit of creative license to just do what they want. That's that's a that's a very wise idea. And, and Mifi, just finally, I told you that I might be going to Australia very soon. Of course, how do you see as well the food scene in Sydney, perhaps? And and I've got to be honest, like especially here in London, there's a lot of articles about Melbourne and everything. But I'm curious about Sydney in particular, where where you live. Well, you know, as much as I was being a little bit of a, a wet sock about our media scene, I have to say that the restaurant scene. In Australia, and I will say Sydney especially, but I do live here, so I might be a little biased, (laughs) is electric. It's electric. It is diverse. It is delicious. We have, I would say, some of the best high-end restaurants in the world, not to mention food at every level that that speaks to a nation of people that 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 uh, of immigration i suppose like we've always been a country that has welcomed people from everywhere um our our regional chinese cuisine and regional indian cuisine is 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 absolutely outstanding we have a huge thai population here we have a korean population so all of these things 
not only figure into um, very specific restaurants of their own, but also they feed into the the cuisine at that higher level. So you have when you look at a fine dining restaurant here, it's so multicultural. It's so multifaceted. It's the layers upon layers of of flavor and texture and nuance. I just I've never experienced it anywhere else in the world, and I can't wait for you to try it. I can't wait either. So uh, listen, see you in Sydney, and thank you so much, Mifi. Pleasure talking to you. Uh, a pleasure speaking to you too. And issue three is out now. For more information, go to shop.swillhouse.com. And now to the delights of Seapool's imprint. Chris Romer Lee wrote a stunning title featuring 66 saltwater sanctuaries from around the world. It's an ode to swimming at some beautiful architectural and historical places. Chris is also the co-founder of architecture practice Studio Octopi, and he joined me in studio to tell us more about his book. Seapools, I, I guess, are the overlooked aspects of, of coastal infrastructure, if we can get all uh, architectural and engineering about it. I'd swam in them for years and never really sort of questioned why they were there, particularly the one in Margate and in Kent, and I, I'd never really thought about it. And then about seven or eight years ago, we did some proposals for a floating lido on the Thames, which we're still battling away with the authorities to make happen. But actually, the very first design of that, without even thinking about it, was actually a tidal pool, albeit in a river. I guess that's where it started. It started from this fixed pool in the river where at high tide would flood and refresh the water. And as the tide went down again, you had a fresh body of water to swim in. And it wasn't until I started on this book that I realised that that's where I was starting from. I'd already designed one pool. And then I got talking to people and I realised that these were really important parts of the community. They, they were, I think in the book I call them liquid piazzas. So these are places where people go and meet and talk and socialise and have lunch and swim and walk and just be outside. They provide a safe environment to be able to access the sort of vitamin-rich sea. And there is something... I don't know, I generally prefer to swim in seawater. I don't know if it's the saltiness. I mean, you're, you're the swimmer here. Do, do you have this preference as well? Um, I'm not so particular. Mm. I mean, I love a sea swim because it's mm. so different to um, natural pools. I mean, I, I swim in the serpentine most mornings mm. when there isn't a, an algae bloom. Like today, I have to say. Like today, yeah. <laughs> um, and the sea swim, I've just been over in the States and had a swim on the Jersey Shore there. And I'd forgotten quite how different it is in the sense of the buoyancy issue. And you do feel much more vulnerable in the sea. It is a, a wild beast which you, you need to, to manage a lot of the time. I mean, obviously there are quieter days, but th th there were some big waves and it was, uh, it was alive. Whereas in the serpentine, you could swim all day and all night and nothing would happen. Although apparently there are nasty biting fish in there as well but <laughs> uh, now now I'm a bit scared <laughs> and, I mean one of the most impressive things for me you know looking at the book is the incredible design of them the architecture mm. uh, for example there's one especially actually it's one of the few that actually I visited but the one in Madeira the Porto Moniz ones because I don't know I love how it connects to nature or to see there's something quite special about it's, the architecture of those places right yeah there is and and i particularly wanted to choose pools which were man-made so all the pools mm. have either been cut from the rock or have had sort of concrete walls applied to natural basins within the rock so we have this sort of weird sort of liminal space where it's it's neither 
in the natural world nor in the man-made world. It is somewhere between the two. And often they're undetectable. I mean, you've got the book open there in mm. Lewinick Cove in Cornwall. This looks magical, uh, actually. <laughs> from that shot, you, you almost think that that's a natural rock pool as mm. part from it's very square. Mm. And it isn't until you actually get there do you see that the, the guy who built that actually lined it out in Italian mosaics and glazed bricks. So it actually felt even more like a swimming pool. Mm. But obviously nature has grabbed that one back somewhat and... and uh, ripped out a lot of the, the finer finishes. So it's sort of, again, back into that transitional space. A lot of them came with glamorous pavilions as mm. well and slides and other features, diving boards, of course, as well. Well, this, uh, talking about the diving pavilions, this is another one. I'm sorry, I'm opening pages very randomly here, but it's incredible. This one in Casablanca, the Centre Bonnière Georges Hortelib, very, very beautiful, actually. Uh, Sadly gone now. Sadly gone. Yeah, oh, the, no. the world's largest mosque sits on top of where it used to be. Oh, God, it looks amazing. I know. It, it looks absolutely, absolutely vast as wow. well. I know you have your own architecture practice as well. By any chance, are kind of pools also involved or is completely different? No, no. Um, Studio Octopi mm. is firmly rooted in doing community swimming facilities as well. We recently finished some work in Australia for Sydney mm -hmm. Water, looking at how to create new swim sites mm -hmm. in the harbour. I took the opportunity to have a look at some of their incredible sea pools when I was there. But um, no, we're, we're actually just starting work on a new sea pool or the feasibility for a new sea pool on the Isle of Wight, as well as working on the restoration of Talair sea pool up in north Aberdeenshire. I mean, way, way up facing north as well. It's a, it's a bleak place, but it's absolutely stunning. And then on the west coast of Scotland, Just uh, outside Glasgow, Saltcoats, they built a tidal pool there in the 1930s and we're doing some work in sort of getting back access to it. It's still there, but the pavilions and the steps and the platforms have all been removed a long time ago in the 80s. And so we've got a project there with the community to reinstate ramps, staircases to get access to the water. Amazing. Uh, I mean, we're discussing Australia, UK, but I feel to me that some countries are kind of experts when it comes to tidal pools or, or sea pools. Like, I think South Africa is one of them, which I didn't know, and there are quite a lot of them featured mm. uh, here in the book. Do, do you know why is that? Why is that um, connection? I think South Africa is very similar to, to Australia, actually. Mm. They do have a very high density of them. It, it became very clear when I started doing the research why, why they were there. Mm. I mean, broadly speaking, across the world, they happen where the tide is a very long tide. Mm. So, for example, in Saint-Malo in France, You've got one of the largest tides of about eight meters. So the tide goes out a long way. So back in the 30s, these pools were built, particularly there, to capture the water. In South Africa and Australia, it's a little bit different. Some of them were built over old fish traps, but they were built really to ensure safe swimming. Rocky coastlines are difficult to get into the water from. Mm. So what better thing to do than to build a seawater pool sitting on the rock plateau. Sharks as well, or I'm going mad here? You've stolen my third point. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yes, the nasties in the water. Mm. Yeah, so a lot of the sort of early colonial arrivals got eaten um, <laughs> by swimming in the sea, and they kind of arrived on those shores when sea swimming was taking off. Mm. People realised the benefits of it, and, uh, yeah, they were lost to the beasts in the big sea, so this provided a safe place to swim. Although I have seen images of sharks inside tidal pools. Really? Yeah, being washed in from storms. Okay. Usually smaller ones, but uh, yes, the last thing you expect to see. Do you have a, a, a favorite? I know there's 66 of them featured. I, mean, I know it's probably hard to choose a favorite, but is there one that particularly that, that you love it? And Fernando, what a question. Yeah, that's a terrible a question. question. Yeah. Um, 
I think there's a, there's a nice little story around around some of the ones in South Africa again. Mm. I found the ones in South Africa, particularly Stramfontein, mm. you've got open there, and Monwabisi, and I was just blown away by the scale of these things. I mean, these are two of the biggest in the world, if not the biggest in the world, and they're simply vast. And I was awestruck, and I was like, wow, these got to go in. It's got a, a wonderful, Stramfontein's got a wonderful postmodern pavilion, very long, thin pavilion, which wraps around. There's a theatre, there's barbecue facilities, everything. So it was like, wow, amazing. And then I looked into it a little bit further, and I found that both of those were built during the apartheid era, mm. and they were built for the mass movement of communities from the city centre out to the Cape Flats, forcibly removed. And they were built for facilities for the new communities that uh, the white South Africans established. Some of these pools were purposely built on knowingly dangerous coastlines, which was clearly quite controversial when you begin to look into it, mm. that they were building these facilities in dangerous places. And some of them had quite large impacts on the beach as well because mm -hmm. of the sheer scale of them. They then made the beach a bit further down incredibly dangerous because of the tides and the rip currents going through. So it had a sort of darker, sinister side to it. So for sheer scale and ambition, those are pretty impressive. But then you get down to the smaller scale at the other end of the, the size of these things, Lady Bassett's baths in, in Cornwall, which were formed in the 1800s by her husband. And she wanted a place to sea bathe. And he very cleverly built a series of them. I think there were seven or eight at different levels on, on the coastline so that at different times she could swim in fresh water as the tide dropped away. Mm. And those are only bath size, so they're the size of this table here, just enough for her to submerge herself. And again, she would have probably submerged herself fully clothed mm. because, you know, it was okay for men to swim naked in the 1800s, but not women. Mm. <laughs> so I guess, you know, those are, those are, those are, those are my favourites because they have a lovely rooted history in them, and they also just capture some of the magic of it. But then, you know, on the front cover, we've got Bronte, which is probably one of the most famous ones. And, you know, I swam there last year, and it's just magical. You know, you've got dolphins swimming just outside Amazing. the pool. And it's a lovely little buzz of a community. You've got lane markers printed out on the concrete base, so people who want to swim lengths can swim lengths around the outside. You can have more leisure swimming. So it kind of ticks so many boxes. And swimming in general, and but, you know, let's talk about sea pools. I feel that... Well, there's a little bit of a resurgence as well. I do, you know, there's so many articles about, you know, wild swimming. I, I don't know if that's in general, but do you, do you see this applied to sea pools as well? I do. And this I think, interest. yeah, I mean, the outdoor swimming buzz, the take up of that has been extraordinary. I think the figures are in 2006, the Outdoor Swimming Society had mm -hmm. 300 members and 10 years later they had... 300,000 members. I mean, oh. it, it's astronomical. And I think that, I mean, recently, obviously, with COVID and the pandemic, swimming outdoors took off because the, the pools were closed. Mm -hmm. So people were like, started swimming their rivers and, and sea pools and lakes and whatever. And suddenly that sort of rekindled again. So we had another surge of, of people going, well, actually, swimming outside is pretty cool. You don't have to worry about verrucas or smelly air from mm -hmm. in leisure centres. We should go back outside. And so I think sea pools have a, have a place within that. Some other work I've been doing is, is with a, a group which I help establish called the Future Lidos Group, which is arguing that we should be building more Lidos. And I think sea pools fall into that as well, where we're campaigning that these Lidos can make money 
can be financially affordable and they can have enormous benefits for the community in terms of health and well-being and bringing communities together. So I think there's quite an exciting process which is going on at the moment where people are beginning to return to the outdoors. I think there's also this issue of the energy crisis and the the, the cost of construction and all of that. So to build a new Lido is, Mm. you know, two, three times as much as it was five years ago. Seapools are considerably more simple. They have an impact on the environment, I appreciate, but they have less of an impact than building a leisure centre and a a, a Lido. So I would argue that, and and obviously you're not heating the water either, Mm. I would argue this is an opportunity to get more people safely into water. The group we're working with on the Isle of Wight are a a community organised group who help people get into seawater. And it's really interesting talking to them because there are people who actually fear the sea Mm -hmm. but love swimming. So their mission is to build this tidal pool, which will then suddenly enable everyone to get in there, regardless of ability, physical ability or or mental ability or whatever it is. And that's quite an exciting prospect that we can open that up to even more people. It's interesting that Sipu is very hard to find an ugly one. (laughs) I don't know why, because I think it's so connected to nature. It's it's practically impossible. Of course, there are the incredible ones, but it's something so beautiful, such a great idea Mm. that... I haven't seen an ugly one. <laughs> now, yet. that's a better question. Maybe you, you've what's, seen the ugly ma- <laughs> what's the ugliest seafood you've seen? Perhaps? Exactly. <laughs> what is it? Do you know? <laughs> um, I, I, probably shouldn't, I probably shouldn't slag off other, other uh, councils, but there, is, there was one built in South End on Sea, mm. <laughs> and they built it too high up the beach so it doesn't refresh the water. So when I went to look at it, it was stagnant water. Now, that was an ugly one. That's, that's terrible. Um, Chris, perhaps could you mind giving us a preview of your future projects or besides this incredible book, which is just out this month? As yeah. Well, um, well I, I think we, we've talked a little bit about what Studio Octopi are, are mm-hmm. doing. We, we've got various mm-hmm. Lidos and Seapools, which we're working on. Talair, the one in Aberdeenshire will be complete. The first phase of that will be complete next year, which will be is the Art Deco Pavilion. Beyond that, there is a plan to do a book on diving boards, lost and found. And sadly, health and safety has got the better of diving boards over the years. And I think there's a, an element, again, of, of like, whatever happened to all those diving boards? And you often see the, just the little holes in the side of the, of the Lido where the diving board was or the diving board's been chopped, like being severed at a certain height. I'm hoping that I'll, I'll get a book out again with Batsford on, on diving boards. And then there's so much more swimming paraphernalia to discuss. So, yeah. Then hope to have you back as well. That would be lovely. Thank you, That was Chris Romerly and his book, Seapools, is out now. For more information, go to batsfordbooks.com. By the way, keep an eye as he will release a book on diving boards very soon. And for more swimming content, why don't you go to monocle.com and buy Monocle's very own Swim and Sun, a Monocle Guide. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editors, Jack Juras and Sami Suisi. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. From Australia, it's Babe Rainbow with Planet Junior. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.